I want to thank you all for being with us here this morning, and we're thankful for all the AV team who continually come in on a weekly basis and make sure that we can stream for David, Antonio, Leanna joining us this morning, and then also thankful for Ben, who's taking care of security for us this morning, as well as Ryan and Edwin. And uh, of course, we want to thank our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for making this possible and for making it possible for everyone who's joining us by live stream. Well, it's been quite a few weeks, and uh, it looks like there is no sign of things slowing down on the streets and in Washington and uh, across the nation. And as... Both our elders have alluded to for the past two weeks, the world has witnessed our nation and much of what this nation celebrates, the world has witnessed it going up in flames. I've been receiving texts from brothers around the world and uh, concerned about all of us, concerned about our church family as they watch the news in Europe and in Canada and in other places. And we've had the disturbing experience for all of us, whether we've seen it in person or on our TVs, to see this nation go up in flames in response to yet another killing of an African-American man by someone claiming to be an officer of the peace. Protest has filled our streets and our social media, allegedly over this epidemic of racial inequality and violent injustice that has tragically plagued and divided our nation, quite frankly, since its inception. Brothers and sisters, this is nothing new. And sadly, like COVID-19, this is an epidemic that we as Americans and we as human beings, as we as image bearers of the Lord, we have yet to remedy in any meaningful way. And where the best that our leaders and our politicians can offer is a plan of mitigation. Slowing things down by segregating and by social distancing. And like COVID-19, this is a problem, sadly, that is not going away anytime soon. And as we come to God's Word, and praise God, we can come to His Word and step away from the narrative of the media and the politicians and the streets. As we come to God's Word and we come to God's narrative, And we come to God's objective truth of what is happening in our world. What is often ignored by pastors, sadly, and politicians alike, is that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was and is no stranger to what we're seeing. Sadly, what is often neglected is that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, provides the only way to rightly understand and deliver us from this total depravity and darkness that dominates our nation 
our hearts, and our world. Brothers and sisters, there is talk about everything under the sun. Everything from racial inequality to social justice, Democrats, Republicans, use of force, not use of force, peaceful protest. But what is so rarely mentioned in all of this is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the good news of His Word, and what God Himself in His authoritative and inerrant Word thinks of everything that's happened and how He has provided for us very clearly a way out of the darkness. And so this morning we break from the Psalms for a week in order to hear what the Good Shepherd has to say to His sheep about these dark times in which we live. If you have your Bibles, please turn with us again to the end of Matthew's Gospel, to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 comes at the end of Matthew's Gospel, and it provides for us Matthew's Spirit-inspired account of one of the darkest nights in the history of the world. The night before Jesus' crucifixion. The night of our Lord and Savior's betrayal by one of His very own disciples. And it's on this evening that Jesus prepares His sheep for the coming darkness. And we'll start reading in verse 30. We'll go back a little bit from where Ted read. So you've heard already this morning how things are going to turn out. But we're going to go a little bit before and see how Jesus prepares His disciples for the coming storm, for the betrayal, for the mob who shows up to take Jesus, for the unjust trial that will follow, and ultimately His crucifixion and His resurrection. How does Jesus prepare His disciples for the coming darkness? Matthew 26, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, these are his disciples who he's just had the Lord's Supper with. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he called to his and he said to his disciples, "Sit here while I go over there and pray." And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, "My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me." And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, "My Father, if it be possible." Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, what do these words, these God-breathed words, have to say about racial inequality and social justice in America? And most, including many people in the church, would say absolutely nothing. But a closer look suggests otherwise. Even as Jesus addresses head-on the crushing sorrow and burden of suffering an unimaginable and horrific death at the hands of unjust and self-righteous men. Self-righteous men whom God the Father has placed in a position of earthly authority over His Son. The big difference here, of course, is that Jesus is the sinless Son of God. And the only shouts that will fill the streets are crucify, crucify, crucify. It's worth noticing here, and as we go through the passion story, that when Jesus was killed, the world by and large did not protest. But instead, it remained culpably silent. To prepare his disciples for this darkness and this depravity, what does Jesus do? Does he talk to them about human rights? Does he talk to them about the First Amendment or the Second Amendment? Does he talk to them about social justice or politics? Does he point the finger at Rome or at the leader of the Jews? Does he tell the disciples to organize a protest? Or a march. As we come to God's word, we see that Jesus does something infinitely more necessary and infinitely more critical. He shepherds his disciples with the authoritative and inerrant word of God. And that brings us to our first point for this morning. Jesus shepherds his disciples' hearts with the authoritative and inerrant word of God. Jesus shepherds his disciples' hearts with the authoritative and inerrant word of God. Well, what do we mean by authoritative? See if our AV team can help me with my next slide. 
Thank you. Okay, what do we mean by authoritative? When we talk about the authoritative and inerrant word of God. By authoritative, we not only mean what is trustworthy, what is accurate, what is true and reliable, but when we say authoritative, we also mean all of that, but also what commands authority and obedience. What commands authority and obedience. And this, of course, is tied to the word inerrant. When we use the word inerrant, we are referring to what is free from error, what is free from mistakes, what is free from falsehood, what is free from fallibility, what is perfect and righteous and true. That's what we mean when we refer to the authority and inerrancy of God's Word. And it is to the authority and inerrancy of God's Word that Jesus appeals to in order to prepare His disciples for their personal devastating response to the cross. In verse 31, Jesus says to His disciples, You will all fall away because of Me this night. Why? Well, what is the basis? What's the reason? What's the explanation Jesus gives, not only for what is coming, but also for his disciples' tragic response? He says in verse 31, For it is written. That verb there is grapho, from which we get the word graphase, the term, the Greek term for the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. And whenever Jesus says throughout the Gospels, it is written, He's making reference to the Scriptures and He's making reference to the authority and inerrancy of the Word of God. He is going through, and you see that over and over again, and He's saying, it is written. He's saying, this is a higher authority. This is a higher standard, Pharisees, and Sadducees, and disciples, from what you say, or your opinions, or the rabbinical interpretations. This is the gold standard. This is the authority of what has come from the mouth of God Himself. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written. And then Jesus cites the written word of Zechariah 13.7. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And in this way, Jesus in love prepares the disciples not only for the cross, but their response to the cross by reminding them that the God of the Bible is Lord of all. Not Rome, not the Jews, not them, not the guards who are going to come, not the centurions, not the Roman soldiers. The God of the Bible is Lord of all. What's going to unfold? What will happen to the shepherd? The striking of the shepherd? The scattering of the sheep? This is all part of God's plan. God is sovereign. He is the one who has planned and arranged and spoken every last detail. The striking of God of, of the good shepherd is ultimately God's authoritative and inerrant work. No mistakes, no falsehood, no error. And it must and will happen exactly according to God's authoritative and inerrant written word. No deviation, no mistakes, no errors, no lies. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. The gospel is not what we do to save ourselves. It's not what politicians do to make things better. It's not what marches in the streets allegedly accomplish or what we're able to do on our Twitter accounts or social media. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is what God has done to save us from our sin. And the comfort that Jesus is bringing them to, and they won't see this till after he's risen from the grave, he's showing them they can trust in him. He's showing them that as bad as things are, as dark as the night is, God is still very much in control. As both Peter and Ted have referenced earlier this morning, that what men mean for evil, God means and works for good. He is authoritative. He is inerrant. He does not make mistakes. And brothers and sisters, what an encouragement to those who are both the perpetrators, but also especially the victims of the horrors of this world. We read through the life of Joseph and we see how he is able to avoid bitterness and anger and self-destructive rage over what his brothers have done to him. And he weeps over it as you read that Genesis account. And his heart is broken and he has tears in his eyes and he can't even look at his brothers. But he is ultimately able to glorify the Lord, care for his family and carry out God's plan of salvation. Why? Because he trusts in the authority and inerrancy not only of God, but of God's word and his promises to Abraham and Jacob, and the authority and inerrancy of God's perfect work, where he is able to say what God does for good, what men mean for evil, God works for good. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the blueprint of the good news of Jesus Christ and Joseph. And this is what Jesus is referring to here. And Jesus is showing them and and, and pointing their faith and, and grounding them, not being tossed back and forth by their opinions or the opinions of the media or the opinions of the police or the opinions of Rome or the opinions of the Jews. He's grounding their hope. That this gospel, this gospel where God the Father will strike down His own Son for our sin, this gospel stands on nothing less than the authoritative and inerrant work of God. On the authoritative and inerrant Word of God. And the authoritative and inerrant Lordship of God. And in preparation for the cross, this is what Jesus calls his disciples to put their faith in. This brings us to our second point this morning. Jesus calls his sheep to put their faith in him and not themselves. Jesus calls his sheep to put their faith in him, the good shepherd of God's word, and not themselves. 
when in verse 31, Jesus says to his disciples with whom he has just celebrated the Last Supper and the Lord's table, he says, you will all fall away. When he says this to them, Jesus is showing his disciples their total depravity. Without exception, no exceptions, regardless of all the miracles they have performed in his name, regardless of all the demons they have cast out in his name, regardless of all the gospel sermons they have preached and all the people they may have baptized, regardless of the time they have spent with Jesus himself, listening to his words and his sermons. Regardless of the reality that these men have left everything, their jobs, their careers, their families, everything to follow Jesus. He says to them, you will all fall away. The verb for fall away in Greek is skandalizo, from which we get the word scandal. And it means they will become ensnared in unbelief, the way an animal would be trapped in a hunter's trap. They will become ensnared in unbelief. They will give in to temptation. They will be lured away by the things of the flesh. They will turn their back on Jesus. They will abandon the good shepherd for a small piece of comfort and for Satan's deception. They will wander and walk away from the path of righteousness. You will all willingly, by choice, walk away from God and His Word. Why? Jesus says, You will all fall away because of me. Who I am, what I choose to do, because of the cross, because I am the good shepherd who will go and be struck down by his Father. Because of the cross, you will all choose darkness over light. You will all choose, because of the cross, the path of the world versus the path of God's Son. How tragic and sad. If Jesus had run and not gone to the cross, if he had taken a deal... Oh, you go to Galilee. You run that there with your disciples. We'll let you do everything you want. Have your church. Do your thing. Just don't come to Jerusalem. The disciples probably would have been ecstatic. In fact, many times they said, Why are you going to Judea? Why are you going to Jerusalem? That's where they hate you. Stay where you're popular. Stay where you're famous. Stay where you're great. Stay where 5,000 people come to be fed and 4,000 people come to be fed. No, it's because He is the good shepherd of God's Word. Because He is the one who will go to the cross when no one else will go to the cross. This is why they will choose to walk away. And you will choose yourself rather than the sinless Son of God who is giving His life for you. And you will all stand and you will all watch and you will all let the Son of God be unjustly tried, murdered, and crucified and you will do so without protest. 
regardless of how much Bible you know and how much you've done in my name. Why? For it is written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Brothers and sisters, they will all fall away because Jesus, not the disciples, Jesus is the good shepherd of God's word. And he is the only reason totally depraved sinners like the disciples have made it this far. It is Jesus' love. It is Jesus' righteousness. It is Jesus' mercy. It is Jesus' grace. It is Jesus' work. It is Jesus' prayers and not theirs that has covered their depravity that has kept them from Satan, that has kept the disciples on the straight and narrow path or pulled them back when they've wandered off. It is Jesus who has kept them together with him. And as you read through the end of the Gospels, you see Jesus explicitly says this repeatedly. In John 17, he talks about how he has lost none of those whom the Father has given to him with the exception of the son of perdition, Judas, who was never truly a sheep at all. And he talks about Peter, how he has prayed, how Satan wants to come and take Peter. But Jesus has prayed in advance on his behalf. Without Christ's righteousness, the disciples like you and I are nothing more than totally depraved sheep. So when God strikes the good shepherd, as he has promised and written in his word, his sheep will do what sheep always do when left to themselves in hard times. They will scatter. They will fall away. They will wander off for a piece of food. They will become hopelessly lost. Not some of them. All of them. But the good news of God's word is that Jesus, not like you or I, Jesus is the good shepherd of God's word. And he will not abandon his sheep who have abandoned him. He is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. And instead he will return, he will gather his sheep, and he will lead them home even as he has promised. And this is what he says in verse 32. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Jesus, through this beginning, when he says, you will all fall away, and then he quotes from Zechariah 13, 7, and then he comes back down and says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus, the entire time, is using the language of a shepherd. That idea of falling away, scandalizo, getting caught in a, in a trap somewhere. And this idea of going before them, it gives to them the image of the ancient Near East shepherd who walks ahead of his sheep to straighten paths and make sure that they get to the right place. And in this way, he, he tells them, he prophesies, he promises he's going to come back for them. He's going to gather his sheep who are scattered. He's going to lead them home, first to Galilee and then to the house of the Lord. Why? Because they're righteous and they're good. And they've got it together and they don't sin? No. It's because he is the good shepherd. 
He is the Lord who is authoritative and inerrant. His word is authoritative and inerrant. And his work, including the work on the cross and the care for his faithless sheep, is authoritative and inerrant. What Jesus is doing in verses 31 through 34 is simply calling his disciples to trust in him and not in themselves. It's very straightforward. It's like, look, we're together here because of me. You're going to get through this even after you wander off because of me. There's reason for hope in the darkness. There's reason to hope even if you're a failure. There's reason to hope if you belong to me because you can trust in me. But if you trust in yourself, you're in bad, bad shape. He's calling his disciples to trust in him and not themselves. Why? Very simply because he is the remedy of God's word. And we, sadly, are the problem, according to God's word. And that brings us to our third and final point for this morning. The gospel shows us that we are the problem, but Jesus is the sure remedy. The gospel shows us that we are the problem, but Jesus is the sure remedy. In verses 33 and 35 First Peter, and then the disciples' response to Jesus' words, to the gospel that he has presented to them. Their response is one of protest. It's interesting how when the gospel is broad and spoken, everybody's okay with it. But when the gospel gets personal, that's when we protest. And here Jesus has made the gospel Personal to the disciples. How is the cross personally going to affect the disciples? How will they respond personally to the cross? How is Jesus personally going to care for them? Well, it's fine when we say that the good news of the gospel is how God saves sinners. Yeah, all those sinners, they need to be saved. It's very different, brothers and sisters. When the gospel shines its light into our heart and our specific sins... And shows us that we are the problem. And what's in my heart is part of the darkness that is destroying this world and those around me and myself. And we see that here for the disciples in verse 33 and 35. 1 Peter and then the disciples. Their response to Jesus' words and his application of the gospel and the cross to their lives personally is one of protest. Verse 33. Though they all fall away... Because of you, I will never fall away. Verse 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And that's Peter, but Peter's speaking on behalf of the disciples. It says, and all the disciples, all without exception, said the same. And here the gospel, as it always does, exposes the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem, brothers and sisters, is us. Our pride and our prideful denial that we might be the problem. That we are as sinful and as depraved as God's word 
says we are. Brothers and sisters, we, we do this all the time. Myself included. We sit there, we hear sermons. And what comes to our minds typically is not me, it's everybody else. My wife, my children, my friends, that person over there. And that's, brothers and sisters, a testimony of who we all are. And that's the beauty of the gospel and how it sets us free. It says, look, let's call a spade a spade. Our hearts are bent Our hearts are totally depraved. Our hearts are shattered and filled with sin. And left to ourselves, once you remove Jesus from the picture, our hearts are always going to go in the same direction. And that's towards the darkness. That's towards finger pointing. That's towards blaming everybody else except me. What's worth noting, noting in verses 33 and 35 is that Peter and the disciples' protest to what Jesus has to say has nothing to do with Jesus. It has nothing to do to what will happen to Jesus. It has nothing to do with what Jesus is going to do. Jesus, too bad you're going to get struck down. I don't say that. Jesus, no, no, you don't need to come back for us. It doesn't say anything about that. Their sole objection is entirely about what Jesus and Scripture says about them and what they will do and what they will not do. And we see here what's offended here is their pride. Peter's pride, but Peter just speaks on behalf of all the disciples. And in verse 35, the Scripture makes it clear that this is all the disciples, not just Peter. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, verse 35, I will not deny you. During my time with Dr. Street, he warned me never to use two words. Especially in my marriage and especially with my family. He warned me never to use the words never and always. Why? Because only one person and one person alone can truthfully back up the words always and never 100% of the time. And brothers and sisters, that person is not us. That person is God and God alone. And yet, brothers and sisters, how often do we use those words, especially when we're getting upset? You never listen to me. I always show you respect. I always take the garbage out. You never clean up the kitchen. Always? Never? A hundred percent of the time, no exceptions in the entirety of our marriage, our family, our church, our ministry. A hundred percent of the time, every single time. Wow, it's just an exaggeration. You know what I mean. Brothers and sisters, nothing in this world is always or never except God. And to claim those words is to suggest that we are right and everyone else is wrong, including God and His Word, which says that we can... Never be perfect 100% of the time. 
claim those words is to suggest we are right and everyone else is wrong, including God and his word, which is exactly what Peter and the disciples are saying in verse 33 and 35. We've read this passage before and we say, oh yeah, you know, Peter's the big talker and he's, you know, more passion than reason. You know, it's the emotional side of the brain, not the, if he was a rational guy, he would never say these things, but he's the hothead. No, look at these words. Jesus has just come out and said, it is written. And you go back contextually and you look at every time Jesus says it is written, how he's appealing to the authority and inerrancy And the gold standard of God's word. And what these men are coming and saying is, Jesus, what you just said is wrong. What scripture says is wrong. It's errant. It's making a mistake. It's not true. At least that little part about us falling away. The part about you getting struck down, maybe that's true. But the part about us falling away, your disciples, we're disciples. That's not true. That doesn't apply to us. What Peter and the disciples have just done is that they have just denied the authority and inerrancy of God's word. They've denied the authority and inerrancy of God's work on the cross. And they have just denied the authority and inerrancy of Christ's lordship over their lives. All a fruit of their pride that would like to think that they are better than they really are. And that they are not the problem. But what they're coming out and saying is, Jesus, you're really the problem here. You're the problem, Jesus, and we're the remedy. And you see that throughout the Gospels repeatedly in the disciples' interaction. It lies low for a little bit. Jesus checks them with the word. They do okay, and then it keeps on popping up. Who's the greatest among us? Jesus, don't go to the cross. Pulling Jesus aside. Why are you doing this? Why are we going to Judea? It comes up over and over and over again. Jesus, if you would just listen to your disciples... Brothers and sisters, what about us? What is it that we say whenever we ignore what Christ's word has to say about us and our lives and our sin and our desperate, desperate need for a Savior to care for us and to keep us On the paths of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, how many times have we said the same things? Peter, I think, always gets a bad rap. I'm a big Peter advocate in Scripture. I think a lot of times we've transferred our own thoughts about what this is, and we get it wrong from the way the Scriptures really present Peter. Brothers and sisters, how many times have we said and thought the same things that Peter or the disciples say? I would never do something like that. I would never kneel on a man's neck for nine minutes. I would never stand by while another person is kneeling on a man's neck for nine minutes. 
I would never loot or throw a brick through a window. I would never riot. I would never make a racist statement. I would always do the right thing. Herein lies, brothers and sisters, the heart of all the darkness that we have witnessed these past two weeks exploding into the streets of our nation. Ultimately, this is not about race, equality, or human rights. Is there racial inequality? Yes. Is there discrimination and racism? Yes. Are things unjust? Are there victims? Yes, they are. But brothers and sisters, that's the symptom. It's not the cause. And as long as we're marching and protesting symptoms, and we ignore the cause, the heart of the problem, which is us, we're going to be marching for a long, long time. And that's the history of America. had a a friend in Canada saying to me over the phone, he said, Mark, this seems to happen to you in Los Angeles every 10 or 15 years. You know what? It's going to happen every 10 or 15 years until Jesus comes, as long as we think that there's a politician or a program or a person who's going to fix all this, but we can keep on sinning and thinking, I'm going to deny Jesus, I'm going to deny His Word, I'm going to deny His work, and I'm going to keep on going on my merry way. The heart of the problem, brothers and sisters, is our sin and our prideful denial that we, all of us, are as evil and as depraved as God's Word says we are. our prideful denial, brothers and sisters, of the authority and inerrancy of God's Word, that we believe we've got a better narrative, which is, I'm not the problem, all those other people are. Be it the color of their skin or their political party or what they do or whether they wear a badge or they don't wear a badge, they're all the problem. Brothers and sisters, the heart of this darkness comes down to our denial that we need a Savior to save us from our sin and from our hearts. The heart of the problem is the denial that that without Jesus in our lives, actively sanctifying us, And the mortification of our sins and bringing us to repentance and going sin by sin into our heart and shepherding us through that without His active work of His authoritative and inerrant Word working in our lives. We would all be kneeling on a man's throat. Brothers and sisters, we live in a nation that places its faith and has always placed its faith, by and large with some exceptions, in fallen men, in individual human rights, and in the accomplishments of fallen men, rather than Jesus. We live in a nation that rewards people for denying God and dominating others. 
in science, in school, in private corporations, in sports, in politics, on the football field. Survival of the fittest. May the best man win. Dominate. And you get the prize and reward. And suddenly we are shocked and outraged when a policeman dominates another man with his knee on his neck. And I'm not saying that that's not horrific. And I'm not condoning it. We should condone it. We should be disturbed. We should be viscerally repulsed by what happened. But shocked and outraged that this would happen in America? Shocked and outraged when our president says you have to dominate, otherwise you look like jerks? When all we've done is applauded people in every aspect of life with an evolutionary worldview of survival of the fittest and the best man wins and whoever dominates gets the prize. We think of what Jesus later tells his disciples, that those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. Well, brothers and sisters, we've been celebrating the sword for quite some time. And in verses 36 through 46, as the storm arrives, praise God, Jesus points his disciples in a very different direction. Not to protest or to pick up swords, but instead to watch and pray with him. Watch and pray for who? For themselves. Why? Because they've got totally depraved hearts. And they're vulnerable and prone. Watch and pray that they would not enter into temptation. Why? Verse 41. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And their failure to do so, the disciples' failure throughout this time, even for one hour to watch and pray with Jesus, even as he brings them along, it demonstrates once again, brothers and sisters, that we're the problem and we're the people who need saving, not Jesus. And Jesus, even as he watches and prays, and he says to the Father, not as I will, but as you will, and he bows his knee and he submits his heart, knowing the trouble and knowing the sorrow and knowing the agony of what is coming, and yet still, what does Jesus demonstrate? That he is completely submitted to the authoritative and inerrant word of God. My Father, verse 39, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. We see the spirit and heart of the only righteous man who is true God and true man, even as he submits to the father and says, yes, I am willing to go to the cross because this is the only way that your righteousness will be fulfilled. This is the only way that the sins of my sheep will be covered. Your work is authoritative and inerrant. Your lordship is authoritative and inerrant. Your word and your plan and your gospel is authoritative and inerrant. There is no other way. And brothers and sisters, as he goes to the cross, he demonstrates for all the greatest protest of all. 
the greatest protest against pride and against sin and against rebellion, against a good and gracious and loving God who does all things well. Brothers and sisters, Jesus protested with his life, but he protested very, very differently than the world does. He protested the heart of the problem in both word and deed, and he showed the disciples. He showed the disciples what the world so desperately needs. It needs a Savior and a good shepherd who's willing to lay down his life for the sins of others. And it's worth noting, brothers and sisters, as you go through the rest of the section of Matthew 26, you see that there's two deviating paths until Jesus comes back and gets his sheep again. The disciples do not watch and pray. And when trouble comes, they protest with a sword and they resort to violence. And when that doesn't seem to work, then they run away. And where does it all come back to, brothers and sisters? It comes back to the heart. It comes back to that first place of that prideful denial, Jesus, you're all wrong, and that denial of the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. Dr. MacArthur, in his commentary, makes this connection. Brothers and sisters, if we don't respect the authority and inerrancy of God's Word, we will never watch and pray. All we will ever do is point fingers. The only reason we would watch and pray is if we believe what God's Word says, that I'm a sinner. Without Christ, I will fall apart and do horrific things. And so I desperately, desperately, desperately need the Lord's help and His care and His oversight and His ministry every minute and every second. Because without Him, the moment He is gone, I'm going to be kneeling on someone's neck. Brothers and sisters, without God's Word, we cannot watch and pray. And that's one of the reasons why we in America don't watch and pray, because we don't really believe God's Word and we don't think we need it. Because those people who know they need it, those are the people who watch and pray. But brothers, the good news of Jesus and the good news of the cross is that Jesus shows us of our desperate need. He comes back for His sheep. He restores and He forgives and He gathers them together. And He gives them the forgiveness that they so desperately need and He draws them to Himself. And then He turns around and He says to Peter, Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. When I first came to the States, I had no love for white policemen. I'd grown up in Canada with Canadian policemen, and I'd seen them, not infrequently, bully and neglect immigrants. Then when I moved to Los Angeles, my time there did not enamor me anymore in medical practice. Sadly, to much of the members of law enforcement. And sadly, it was because what came through the practice and our interactions in the medical practice with a number of policemen was not encouraging, including bullying and using weapons to intimidate 
or to get to the front of the line or even on one occasion asking me to change medical documentation in favor of a legal case and to backdate it to which I said, you understand I can't do this. And so I came out of those experiences despising and hating white police officers. I looked down on them. I found them despicable. Based on my personal experience with them. And yet, God saw fit in His wisdom and His mercy to bring me to a church that was filled with white police officers. And He put me on a mission trip with a retired California highway patrolman who was a new believer. And in spite of my many years and my great theological knowledge, this new believer who was a retired California highway patrolman, large Caucasian man, just humbled me with his love and his transformed life, his love for Christ, and his faithfulness to the good news of Jesus Christ. The people of a different skin color in South Africa who were dying of AIDS. And yet here was the man who in my eyes and my esteem was far more like Jesus than I was. And what the Lord proceeded to do, not just by virtue of sweet fellowship, to see that Christ was the one who had brought peace and bring these men into my lives and, and humble me through them and teach me about Jesus through them and encourage me. And just bring a sweet unity of spirit with these men who I admire and respect. But even more so, what the Lord was doing during that time was He was bringing me to the authority and inerrancy of His Word. A word many times that I felt I knew better because I was a physician or I had a lot of theological knowledge. And yet, as the Lord, through Dr. MacArthur's preaching, week in, week out, what He showed me, You can know a lot about the Bible. But are you listening and are you hearing? And are you letting God's word show you the truth of your heart? And through that time, what God was so gracious and kind to do was to show me I am no better than those police officers who treat others brutally. I have no right not to forgive them and I have no right to maintain hate in my heart. And as long as I maintain hate in my heart, I am basing my life on my personal experience and not the truth of the gospel. So God graciously during that season, through all of those things, through His love and through His word that transformed the local church, brought me to a place where I said, Lord, I need your forgiveness for this hate. This is not right. I need to be praying for these men. I need to be praying for my enemies, including the ones who treated me poorly. I need to be praying for those who hate me because of the color of my skin or that I'm Asian. Why? Because you have forgiven me of so much more. And that's the reality of the cross. And that's the gift of Christ. And that is the truth that sets men free. Brothers and sisters, 
As we think about the days ahead, how does God call us to respond to what we're seeing on the streets? Well, as Ted led us this morning, we need to be in prayer, not just for police officers, and we need to pray for police officers. There are many believing police officers that we need to pray for, many who are my dear friends, brothers. But we also, as Ted did, we need to pray for those men who have been arrested, not because we condone what happened, but because that's the gospel, brothers and sisters. We need to pray for the repentance of all men. God desires that no men perish in their sins. He wants all men to be saved. We need to pray for the politicians who we disagree with, even when what comes out of their mouth is divisive. Because that's the gospel that saved you and I, brothers and sisters. And we need to pray for the streets and the people who are there, uh, people on both sides of the barricade. Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't come just to save the good people. He came to save sinners like you and I. Brothers and sisters, this is a season when we have the opportunity to walk with Jesus to the cross and to do so by watching and praying. Let us, together with Christ, watch and pray not only for our own hearts, but for the hearts of this nation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a Savior you are. How desperately we need you. How desperately this nation needs you. How desperately the police officers and the military and the politicians need you. Lord Jesus, for all the people in this nation, immigrants, illegal, registered, the citizens. Lord Jesus, would you give us a heart of repentance where we would see that we indeed are the problem. Would you enable us by faith to look to you and place our faith in you and not ourselves so that we might indeed, as one people with one heart, that we might sing, blessed be the name of the Lord, and that we would be able to do so even in dark times when the storms come because our faith is not in ourselves or our circumstances, but our faith is in the cross. In your name we pray, amen.